It's the turn of the century, and the Eurovision Song Contest is transforming. Welcome, Europe! It's out with older, more restrictive rules. This year, the artists can sing in the language of their choice and not necessarily in the language of their country. And in with a new order for the contest. The show gets bigger. A lot bigger. TV studios and concert halls are out. Massive arenas are in. Let's start the music. Let's start the fun. The, the Eurovision, Eurovision Song Contest 2001. And Europe is changing too. Culture and politics are becoming more intertwined. The expansion of the European Union from 15 to 25 member states. Frontiers which divided East and West, symbolically demolished. And to send the clearest possible signal that the European Union wants Turkey inside the European family. New participants from countries on the political and geographical margins of the continent. Today marks the end of a long journey from communist rule 15 years ago. We finally feel like that we are in Europe. Are flooding the contest and they're winning too. Winner of the Eurovision Song Contest, it's Estonia, Estonia. Latvia, ah. and it's Turkey. Eurovision's center of gravity is shifting eastwards. And on the sidelines, there's one country watching with ambition in their eyes. And they're about to have one of the biggest success stories of the modern era. Ukraine. Hey you guys, it's William Colling from Wee Wee Vlogs. It's Freddie here. And it's been a long time, Mr. Tennyson. A long, a long time. You know what? Liverpool was so tiring. It took us about six months to get back in here. Yeah, you were shattered on the floor, pieced you back <laughs> together. And basically, we were talking and we realized it's the end of 2023. And that means we don't have that much time left to celebrate Ukraine's 20th anniversary in the contest. Two decades. Freddie, give me some numbers. Well, William, they're the only country to have qualified for the grand final every time since the semifinals were introduced in 2004. And in the 18 times they've competed, they've brought home the winner's trophy a whopping three times with a further 11 top 10 finishes. Yeah, and as you heard there in that top intro, the noughties were a time of great transition for Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest. And there's no one country that shows that more than Ukraine. So in this episode, we're going to delve into the story of how Ukraine, a nation in flux between East and West, transformed itself into the song contest powerhouse we all know and admire today. This is the story of what really happened at Eurovision. So I arrived there late at night. The uh, airport arrival door opened. There were plenty of press. And the singer obviously met me with his bodyguards and an armored car. And I don't know what. I went, wow. <laughs> That's the Maltese songwriter Philip Vela. 
he was drafted in to help write Ukraine's first ever entry. Now, at the time, Ukraine was known internationally for corruption and some shady business dealings. So you can imagine how Philip must have felt. But we'll get back to him later. Right. First things first. Why did Ukraine want to participate and how did they get there? The idea was masterminded by Gennady Korochka. He was a young marketing executive at the time. He'd been looking for ways to bring Ukraine to the world stage sort of as a public relations tool. He'd seen Eurovision being played on a big screen in a public square while visiting Helsinki, and he decided that Ukraine needed to take part. Yeah, we spoke to Gennady for this podcast, and he told us that he approached Ukraine's broadcaster, which he says wasn't interested. The television boss at the time told him there were two hurdles. The first was that the broadcaster lacked competent employees to handle Eurovision. The staff were hangovers from the Soviet era, and none of them even spoke English. So Gennady assembled a team of young, English-speaking Ukrainians. Most of them were university students and recent graduates who'd studied international relations. They were inexperienced, and doing press and marketing for Ukraine at Eurovision would be one of their first jobs, if not the first. This is Vasil Moroshnyshenko. He was part of the English-speaking team put together to help bring Ukraine closer to the contest. And by the way, he's now Ukraine's ambassador to Australia. We actually then approached uh, the public broadcaster at that time. And we said, look, uh, we have a team of people here. We all speak English and we were very young at that time. I was 21, I think. And we kind of said, oh, and look, uh, I think your team in the public broadcasting probably needs some, some, some good people. We'll be happy to help you to recruit those people. The second hurdle for the broadcaster was its enormous debt to the EBU, which is, of course, the European Broadcasting Union, the body that puts on Eurovision and sort of shares programming between countries. Now, Ukraine owed around 4 million euros. They'd been broadcasting and screening EBU content for years, but they had not paid a penny. They couldn't participate in Eurovision until this debt was addressed. Here's Vasil again. It, you know, we had to also obstacles in getting and securing Ukraine's right to, to perform. The major challenge was a state-owned television station had to pay that debt. EBU said, oh, you, why don't you do your debt first and then you will have your singer represented. And I think the biggest challenge what we did, we convinced them to, you know, eventually in different installments. So the bottleneck was to convince them to accept kind of a strategy. And I think we managed to kind of pull it off. And uh, they came, we, you know, we ended up with some sort of arrangement of how the debt is going to be covered, but it shouldn't impact our ability to be represented. So the EBU eventually agreed to let them pay off their debt in chunks. They were going to Eurovision and now they had to choose an act. From the very beginning, they were thirsty for that win. We said, look, if we can get in, and maybe we can win. If we can win, we can host it. So our main motivation was all about getting the rights to host the Eurovision Song Contest because we uh, we really believed and were convinced that this is actually going to help Ukraine publicize itself. In 2003, we didn't have any you know, competitions internally of how to select a singer. So at that time, we would pretty much go out and talk, talk to some uh, major singers in Ukraine and would offer them an opportunity to come and represent Ukraine at the Eurovision Song Contest. And that was in 2003 when Ukraine was the first time represented in Riga. We had Alexander Ponomarev, who was a big star in Ukraine and who had the funding um, and he was interested in getting in there, right? And I think that that was um, our first experience of actually being exposed to coming to to, to to Riga, seeing how it, how it works. 
uh, you know, seeing all those journalists who come there for two weeks, you know, a big celebration of music and at the same time a, a big cultural event, uh, well uh, covered by mass media uh, and also attracting millions in, 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 the, in, in, in the live audience. And that is where Philip Vella comes in. At Eurovision 2002, the most recent edition of the contest, he'd taken Malta to second place with the song Seventh Wonder, performed by Ira Losco. That helped make Philip a hot commodity in Eurovision circles. He was invited to Ukraine to work with the pop star Oleksandr Ponomaryov. At the time, he was the country's biggest pop star, a very big deal. He was also very rich. So I arrived there late at night. The uh, airport arrival door opened. There were plenty of press. And the singer obviously met me with his bodyguards and an armored car, and I don't know what. I went, wow. <laughs> where did where did you go? Where did they take you? They took me into his house, which he had in the countryside. I mean, away from the city, which was an unbelievable, unbelievable house, surrounded by a racetrack for for four wheel drive uh motors and uh, uh at that time huge flat tv screen you know a, a incredible place philip spent 10 days in ukraine working on the song with alexander what were your impressions of the singer was this an artist you respected did you think there was talent there yeah i mean he was he i don't know if he is, still is but at that time he was huge in ukraine and russia he was extremely rich and extremely well equipped in the sense that he was doing concerts all around Ukraine. He had about three large, very large trucks carrying all his equipment, stage and and for the stage and for the sounds and everything. He was, he was huge there, huge. <laughs> did you think he was in it for himself or did he also feel pressure to do well for Ukraine for its big debut in this competition? Yeah, yeah, he, he was in it for himself, I'm sure. I mean, everybody's in it for himself. But he, definitely, they wanted Ukraine to do well. Definitely. And I mean, they were really professional in their way of doing things still, and this was their first time. But I knew they were going to succeed in the end because they were op obsessed in doing well. They were doing anything possible for them to do well. But when Philip returned to Malta, Ukraine called again. This time, it was bad news. I mean, I left there thinking that the song was done, and they were going to do my song. Then I got back to Malta, and they contacted me later that he uh, was going to do a song from the composer who, write, who wrote Diva. Okay, so this was the problem. Back in Ukraine, the Russian singer Philip Kirkorov had wedged himself into the situation. Just so you know, Philip Kirkorov competed at Eurovision for Russia. He was their first contestant, and he had popularized in the late 90s Eurovision by doing covers of songs like Diva. So he was sort of, in many ways, like the godfather of Eurovision in lots of Eastern European countries. Now, he was also a longtime friend of Oleksandr, so Philip Kirkorov was acting like an advisor. 
You see, at the time, Alexander told the BBC he was determined to win the contest and find international fame across the continent. So that's probably one reason why he decided to listen to Philip Kirkorov at the 11th hour. Kirkorov convinced Alexander to abandon the song he'd worked on with Philip Vela and to use one written by his own friend, Zvika Pick, the Israeli songwriter behind Donna International's Diva. Gennady told us that he and the broadcast team both actually preferred the original song by Philip Vela, but had to bow to pressure from the artist. Tell us a bit about the song um, you wrote for them. What was it like? Have you used it since? I have not used it since. I, I think I gave it to Amoki's Finger um, when I came back. I don't, think, I don't think it made it to the festival. And then I didn't use it again, because obviously then two, three years later, it becomes dated. Well... In fact, we do have a demo of that original song, uh, courtesy of Philip. It's called Escape. Let's have a listen. The singer is Chris Harding from Malta, and the lyrics come from Gerard James Borg. William, you're going to have to give us your best uh, Wee Wee Jury reaction. Let's do this. Oh, let's do this. When one becomes two, wouldn't I watch it? through the moon of your heart do you know what i've listened to it a few times since philip sent it my way and i think it actually gets better with every listen oh it sounds very musical theater which i guess at the time might have worked on stage but look he said it himself he said that a few years later it sounded dated and it's been 20 years so this is from another era it's of a time for sure (laughs) yeah how do you think it would have done it doesn't sound ukrainian at all And, you know, it's funny because Ukraine later, all of Ukraine's wins at Eurovision have in some way reflected the national music, right? Yeah, when you think of Ukraine at Eurovision, you think deep into the kind of ethnic sound. Oh, yeah. That's what we love. That's what we want. Whereas, I mean, that sounds like it was written by someone in Malta for (laughs) any country. Do (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, But fair game. It's a marketplace. That's no shade on Philip. And that's of a specific time, specific era. And that's why they wanted him. Well, we'll never know how that would have done at Eurovision, but we do know that the song Ukraine ultimately chose, Hasta la Vista, did not live up to anyone's expectations. Yeah, the decision was not a success. Once again, there's so many distractions in the background, it's hard to keep your eyes and ears on the singer and the song. Turquoise is the new black in the Ukraine. Don't try to looks just like Dan Stevens from the Eurovision movie. Yeah, he's not he's not quite as dreamy. Maybe dreamy a few decades earlier. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got a rocket lifting off on stage. Okay, there's a woman with her leg above her head and she's spinning. She is flexible though, I'll give her that. Oh, oh yes, yes, her head. Oh my gosh. Her ass is now on her head. <laughs> How do you do that? 
It just doesn't feel Ukrainian. No. The only thing that says it's Ukrainian is the fact that he has the Ukrainian flag and a badge on his white suit. And, okay, so listen, my Wee Wee Jury score is a two. That was a hot mess. Wow. That was a hot mess. Wow, that's cutthroat. I know it's been several decades, so maybe at the time this felt okay, but yeah, and you gotta think who won that year was every way that I can, which was the most epic Eurovision song. And also ethnic. Epic and ethnic. Yeah. And you knew yeah. that was from Turkey. So true. Whereas Asa La Vista, you would assume it's from Spain. Mm. Like it mm. there's just zero connection. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Well, that's what we think in 2023. Philip, the Maltese composer whose song was rejected, he remembers that Alexander wasn't a happy bunny. No, that was that was huge disappointment. I mean, the thing is, didn't even talk to me when 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 the result came out. I mean, I, I never talked to him since. I mean, he was really extremely nice to me whilst we were there. We went to all the parties with him. As, I mean, I was there with him all the time in every party he went and every press conference he did i was always with him but then in the end um he didn't even talk to me um I, he was really extremely disappointed i didn't think he expected the result he got i mean for the effort he made and i think the composer promised him that he was going to do well if he do his song which is something which i did not do the mediocre result only made ukraine hungrier for the win yeah they were starving it was back to the drawing board, and girl, they came back fighting. Yep, for the next edition, they said goodbye to all of that. They decided to go full-on Ukrainian with Ruslana, a firebrand from the Carpathian Mountains who was popularizing Ukrainian music at the time. Here's Vasil, Ukraine's ambassador to Australia. In 2004, we uh, discovered, we well, we knew about Ruslana. Uh, she was also a big uh, star in Ukraine at that time. He just recorded um, a new song, while dances she's been touring quite a bit so she's been one of those uh, ukrainian singers who probably had uh, a capacity and also an opportunity to actually raise money uh, to invest in in marketing and pr and what was your strategy with ruslana <laughs> because from the outside we heard carpathian mountains she's perhaps even special within ukraine she's considered different than mainstream what was your approach we 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 looked at the, at the at the song, you know, in the wild dances. It was very ethnic, uh, very kind of lots of energy out there, and it we uh, you know already knew that it would probably stand up. For Aslana, performing clearly meant a lot. She had to shoulder some of the expenses herself. And I remember, I think I remember the budget for that. For I remember we calculated the budget and we said, Aslana, I think you you'll need to invest about three hundred thousand dollars, right? And I think she had to sell an apartment that she had or something. And um, it was still a big uh, sum of money, especially for 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 two thousand and four, three hundred thousand dollars US dollars was quite a lot of money. So I think she sold uh, an apartment she had, and she had some of the savings, and uh, she understood that she was really kind of betting a farm and a house on this Eurovision, right? And uh, but she wanted to try something new, and she she was ready to experiment. Basil says that they knew Wild Dances was a great song. The problem was getting people to pay attention to Ukraine in the contest. But our strategy was very kind of uh, rational. And we uh, looked at all the countries participating uh, within the Eurovision Song Contest. And we thought, you know, and every country has, uh, you know, 12 points, 10 points. Every country is voting, right? And we uh, thought, why don't we just take Ruslana to some of those smaller countries? ahead of this and just try to get a gig in a club, try to get a media a TV interview or get some press coverage. We know that today in 2023, the contest is more than just a few live shows. 
Ahead of May, there's a mad scramble across Europe to promote the axe, but back then, the pre-parties just really weren't a thing. The Ukrainian team was among the first to do a continent-wide promo tour to whip up support. So we picked 15 small countries in Europe, uh, covering Baltics, uh, Scandinavia. Um, I, I personally traveled with her to Iceland. We also went to southeastern Europe, to the Balkan states. And uh, the idea was, you know, she would perform at, at a club, uh, do a TV interview, maybe get a press interview as well. And nobody knew about her in Europe, right? But she, in many cases, she was the only one out of all the uh, batch of singers from the Eurovision Song Contest who actually traveled to the country. So it would be picked up, right? And then we also had a strategy of how we worked with commentators to make sure that those commentators, when they go live, they actually mentioned that Ruslana was there. And that was, for instance, a case in Iceland when the Icelandic commentator, uh, you know, when she was performing, she would say, oh, by the way, Ruslana was the only singer who actually visited Reykjavik. Yeah, and uh, and then Iceland would give her 12 points. And then there are all those countries, that smaller ones that she visited, she, they really would give her higher points. You know, it's difficult to fully prove from scientific point of view what was the correlation? So, Freddie, I actually interviewed Gennady, the young marketing executive who brought Ukraine to the contest for my book, uh, which ended up becoming my memoir, Wild Dances, My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision, <laughs> available now on Amazon. Any opportunity. <laughs> and he told me that they worked to drum up support in a few ways. So going into the competition, they were not the favorites. Uh, the favorite was actually Serbia's Zelko Joksimovic. And Ukraine was like, whoa, how do we steal some of the thunder? How do we get the attention? They need to pull focus. Yeah, right? Because you can be forgotten before the contest even starts with the press. So what they did is they asked all the Ukrainian cameramen in the room to follow them, to like act like she was some megastar. And so they followed her around the press mm. center. And then other camera crews started following them too. The other thing, which kind of was a happy accident, organizers of the contest had made a really big deal about the fact that the stage had shatterproof glass panels. This was a mm. thing, it could not be broken. Well, Ruslana, let's just say she was whipping her hair back, right? <laughs> she danced so hard that she actually cracked one of the panels on the floor and it became a huge media story, you know, showing how hungry she was, but also how hard she could kick. Yeah, it's very Titanic, isn't it, really? The ship will not sink, the stage will not break. Will, <laughs> and it you know, she let Jack stay on the floating glass <laughs> panel at the end. And of course it worked. She started climbing the odds table and then ultimately she won. But I think if you look at all of this in the round, you'll see that Ukraine really was the first country kind of doing hardcore marketing and PR beyond the free CDs, beyond some, you know, tats, some t-shirts. They were finding ways to create hype that had an actual influence on the betting odds. Yeah, you see, for, for Ruslana, and unlike Alexander from the year before, Eurovision wasn't just a competition that would lead to new heights of fame. Um, she actually saw it as kind of a mouthpiece for her country. And she's gone on to use her appearances to push for Ukraine's integration with the West. And she's been recognized on the global stage for it, too. Yeah, in March 2014, U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama gave Ruslana the prestigious Women of Courage Award that was for her role in the Maidan Revolution. Now, if you don't know, those were protests in Kyiv's Independence Square that called for Ukraine to look to the West rather than growing closer to Russia. That was amid a violent government crackdown by Ukraine's then pro-Russian leader. For her steadfast commitment to nonviolent resistance and national unity in the fight against government corruption and human rights abuses, we name Ruslana Lazichko a woman of courage. 
She was also a member of parliament from 2006 to 2007. She then went on to work for judicial reform. Here's Rosanna speaking to Weebie Blog's very own Simon Fault last month. I was so active for Orange Revolution, for Revolution of Dignity. Now I'm fighting for independence and freedom of Ukraine. I try to unite people for that around the world, say something very very light about my country, just bring the light of Ukraine. So it's very important for me. And my message for this moment, so unite people because of future, because we have a dream for tomorrow. And uh, just people, we want to be happy. Oh, Freddie, you know what? My head now is bouncing between wild dances and hasta la vista. <laughs> but I guess hasta la vista is appropriate because we are saying goodbye to Ukraine for now. Stunning segue. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to be looking at lots of other stuff this season. Yeah, here's a little taster. Literally every 15 seconds, whatever I would do, the whole arena would scream. And I was like, oh my God, maybe I'll win. <laughs> the assistant head of delegation for Finland every year. And kind of surprisingly, I also danced in <laughs> Finland's number this year in the green room as they're kind of counting the jury points and everything. And I'm trying to like, I'm sitting next to Gary and I'm trying to explain like how the point system works, right? Because, you know, he's not that familiar with Eurovision. So I was like, okay, after this and after this. You know, everything can still happen. And if you get zero points from this country, it doesn't mean anything. And you might get, you know, so I was trying to like explain that. As the uh, popular vote, the televote came in, um, and the sort of insane amount of points that came in, I, I think we were just like over the moon about that moment. I think you can see that in the in the footage when when how we celebrate together. And we want you to get in touch. What stories do you think are deserving of a closer look? Let us know on the comment section of YouTube and also on the Weeby Blogs website where you can access this podcast as well. Thank you for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.